Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Rob Mahoney of The Ringer and, of course, The Ringer NBA show as well. And we have a great conversation, talk about our takeaways from the playoffs so far, including some interesting elements of team building, what defines a championship contender, a little bit of discussion about a Warriors-Celtics series, should it come to pass, and a lot of great stuff here. It runs about an hour, and it is brought to you by betonline.ag. If you use that CLNS50 code, you get a 50% welcome bonus. So I hope you do that. And I hope you really enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course, Danny. I'm having some trouble. And I know you're you're a good person for this because you think big picture too. I'm having trouble kind of piecing together larger takeaways from the 2022 playoffs so far. Is there anything that stuck out to you as like something that you've learned that'll kind of affect your playoff analysis moving forward? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint if this this blowout trend we're seeing is, you know, high variance, three-point shooting plus like a bit of an aberration in a way that, that might regress in future seasons and we see something, you know, a little more normal in terms of some of these games being a little bit more competitive or if this is just the way it is now. And so I'm definitely talking to a lot of people about that and thinking a lot about that right now for understandable reasons. I mean... Just in some of the second halves of, halves of these games, you have a lot of time to think all of a sudden when it's a 20-plus point margin for for a lot of the runtime. And so that's a big part of it. I'm trying to think in terms of strategy if there's anything that's been dramatically different. Uh, I mean, this is definitely a noticeably small playoffs, even by modern playoff standards. You know, by the, point, by the time you get to the Western Conference Finals and the Eastern Conference Finals, you would expect maybe like one team to still be playing pretty big. That's not really the case with this group at all. I, I guess it depends on how you define Boston uh, and what they do with Horford and Williams on the floor but it does seem like we're getting more and more perimeter oriented smaller and smaller every season and this year is no exception to that that's a great point and I I think one of my favorite elements of these playoffs has been the shifting nature of different series or players within them you could think about Steven Adams as a good example you know the Grizzlies aren't in the Western Conference Finals but Steven Adams functionally got played out of the first round when they played against Minnesota, there wasn't a great place for him to be, especially with his limitations guarding Carl Anthony Towns. And then facing the Warriors, a team that ostensibly plays small a lot, though that can shift on injuries and everything else. And all of a sudden he has a place in. And I think it's been a similar story in Celtics Heat, where different players being on and different players being off, as we've seen a lot of injuries shape that series, has changed the way the way that teams play and that's the way it should be is you know styles makes fights and everything else and so like Robert Williams is a great example here where Robert Williams there were times like Boston it looked like Boston's uh, in the various points of the playoffs including in the Bucks series their best lineup didn't include him and part of that is because Robert Williams has been dealing with this coming back from this meniscus injury but also because Boston when they can play switchy and everything else works really well but the wrinkle that Ime Udoka incorporated more fully once the Heat got so hurt that they couldn't really run normal offense of going bigger and daring Miami to kind of take some of those shots worked out really well too. And so the idea of defensive versatility, either from individual players or from a team's collective personnel is still valuable. And we wondered after the last couple of years, how much that was still true. You know, last year's finals, featured a Suns team that is very talented, but not particularly defensively versatile. 
against the Bucks, who they were more of that personnel-based versatility rather than like like you know like they could play Brook Lopez or not play Brook Lopez because partially because they had PJ Tucker, and so. I think we've seen a return to the idea that being able to do different approaches, whether that's switching, zone, drop, whatever, to accommodate and to adjust to who you're facing is still probably the best overall strategy if you can pull it off, and most teams can't. Yeah, and that's where this series with the Celtics and the Heat, I mean, those are those are two of the best teams in the league when it comes to exactly that kind of variability and approach and scheme flexibility. It's it's led to an incredible defensive slugfest. It's just one of these teams has a lot more to work with offensively right now, especially given the injury situation. But I'm glad you brought up Rob Williams, and especially in regard to defensive versatility, because I think when we talk about versatile defense, we tend to talk about wings who can guard bigs, like, you know, a three who can play four or a four who can play five and we don't talk often enough about okay are you a five who we can station to guard a three but you're still going to be a rim presence for us in terms of protection and shot blocking and that's what's really been unique about boston's approach and about williams in general is we're seeing scheme flexibility defensively flip the other way in a way that has just totally changed the dynamic of that series for so many guys on the heat roster when you look at what jimmy butler was able to do against the sixers mind you when he was a little bit healthier and in terms of whatever's going on with his knee. That was just a totally different Jimmy Butler. And we've seen him sometimes be directly guarded by Rob Williams or just when Rob Williams is lurking about, has had to completely change his driving approach, how aggressive he can be, the way he hunts for fouls. Because if you're Jimmy Butler and you're driving into contact and you're getting hung up on an an initial defender, now Rob Williams is coming over to swat that shit out of bounds. And it just changes the nature of how he's looking to attack. And this is where Bam comes into this conversation, too, because, you know, these are the playoffs. We're welcoming in fans and media of all kinds to to enjoy the game and talk about it and and kind of get immersed in this world. And with that comes a lot of conversation. I find that player X needs to be aggressive. You know, they didn't get enough shots. They need to be aggressive. They didn't they didn't they weren't a factor enough. They need to be aggressive. And I I understand the idea of that, especially when it comes to Bam out of bio. Yeah, I I was going to say it doesn't apply to a lot of guys, but it does to Bam. (laughs) It does apply to Bam. Absolutely. And I think Rob Williams feeds into that instinct so much because you already have this guy in bam whose instinct is to facilitate and you're you're putting him in positions where there is this lurking shot blocker and a lurking shot blocker who isn't necessarily guarding him all the time in a way that i think makes bam a little bit nervous to attack you know he's already a guy who is a little bit undersized by center standards i think he and rob williams are technically listed at the same height which i I do not believe (laughs) disinformation to me um And so, yeah, so Bam is a guy who is feeding into his own worst tendencies as a player as a result of this specific kind of defensive versatility. So all credit to Ime Odoka, all credit to Rob Williams, because that that dynamic that the Celtics have cultivated over the course of this entire season is really paying off right now in such a huge way for them. Along those lines, something else that I noticed in game five of that series on Wednesday is that there is there is a mental difference And I think back to, you know, I never played at any remotely high level, but even when you're, you know, just playing pickup with your friends or anything else, there there are times that there's a mental stress to not being sure that you're open, whether you are or you're not. And so, I mean, we saw that when P.J. Tucker had two corner threes blocked by Robert Williams on these aggressive, incredible closeouts. And also, I would say that was a factor in, you know, Derek White's pressure and presence for somebody like Max Struess. And Derek White has done a really good job with like rear view contests and getting back or changing, changing sight lines and all that. And so it, there are all these measures, second spectrum and everything else now in terms of whether a shot is open or not. And I, I think those add to the conversation. However, I don't think they tell the entire story because a part of it is the perception. And so I, it's funny, I was just watching film on Jabari Smith, who's in this class, and I don't want to get into a whole Jabari Smith thing, but it was reminding me, you know, there's some stuff with Kevin Durant. It's like, whether you are open or not is in some ways a physical distance thing, but in other ways it is a mental element because it's like, because some players it's like, I don't really care if I'm open as long as I have the sight line to the basket, I'm okay. Like that's part of why Kevin Durant has been the best player in the world at moments in time over the last five years. 
And for what Boston is doing, they're, to their immense credit, especially in four and five, they've made the Heat players uncomfortable as if they are not open, whether they are open or not. And that's not a new occurrence for them either. Like, right. I'm glad you brought up Durant because I think that's some of what we saw when the Nets and Celtics played in the first round is you saw some of the... Some of the pull-ups KD is used to getting to completely uncontested. Jason Tatum did a great job of, of contesting, and I think he even got him with a couple blocks in he that did. series. And so then you have this player who's operating on a different level of consciousness, frankly, like in a different sphere of existence in Kevin Durant in most in most matchups, having this supreme confidence. And then you just put that little sliver of doubt into his head that actually this is a defender who can get to that shot. Actually, everything that you have kind of banked your game on at this stage in your career, this is a guy in a defense who can challenge that. And at the same time, they're going to put three bodies in between you and the rim in case you even think about driving. Boston, I mean, their defense has gotten plenty of praise, but in some ways not nearly enough. I mean, this is just a phenomenal defensive unit in terms of their coordination, in terms of their individual defense, in terms of their schematic coaching. They they press all the right buttons in a way that makes it really exciting to watch them just have a shutdown half against the Heat like we saw in the second half of, of Game 5, but also the prospect of, you know, if we want to look forward, what that could look like against the Warriors or, you know, hypothetically if history has made the Mavericks. Exactly. And and I think that you led straight into my second takeaway, which is not totally original in the 2022 playoffs, but is becoming more clear in my mind. And Celtics Bucks is probably the best articulation of that for me. I talked about this a little bit with Jared Dubin and Dan Feldman over the last couple of weeks is over the years, Nate Duncan and I on, on Dunked On, we, like, he articulated this idea that the playoffs are not about the severity of your strengths they're about the severity of your weaknesses and i think you know so we brought up you know DeRozan was probably the original inspiration for that but there are a lot of other players where it's like okay the th- because there are so few things against the best opponents and you just brought up Durant with Boston that are there are so few things that are truly undeniable there are a few but there aren't that many and so for an individual player it's the things that you can't do your opponent is going to make you do those as, as much as they can whether that's that you're bad on defense like Trey Young or you're a limited passer or your reluctant shooter, whatever the case may be. Playoffs and over whether it starts in game one or you kick in in game four, you're like, oh yeah, this guy can't do that. It does that. And and so I've long thought about that from the individual perspective. And I think about a star's weaknesses a lot. However, what I've been realizing more clearly in these playoffs, defensively, more so than offensively, because I've known it offensively for years, is that within a rotation, one of the best things that a team can have is in a, a, a small amount of weaknesses defensively. And Grayson Allen is the one that made me, that kind of inspired some of this, which is in that series, the Bucks were, because of Chris Middleton's absence, they were extremely limited offensively. And one of the easiest ways to generate decent to great offense is to attack the weak point in opposing defense, opposing defense. And so if we shift to game five of, of Celtics heat, Ime Odoka only played seven guys. Jason Tatum, Al Horford, Robert Williams, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Grant Williams, and Derek White. Peyton Pritchard got a couple of minutes, but he barely played. And he even he has done a pretty good job holding up. Like compared to the Civ standards, he's much better. And when it's especially when a team is limited or just a team is imperfect, well, crap, what are you gonna do to attack that? What is your go-to? What 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 are you going to do? What is the exploit there in terms of isolations in terms of like who are you running a pick and roll at because there are guys who are better defenders than others but there are no weak ones in that mix well especially if we want to zero in on the severity of weakness i think that's where getting 24 minutes out of an injured and in some ways invisible marcus smart in this game was really important because the difference between the idea of attacking peyton pritchard and the idea of attacking marcus smart even when he's injured are so profoundly different that it really did leave the heat with nowhere to go and I think if the Heat had pressed on that a little bit, they may have found a more accommodating defender in an injured Marcus Smart than they thought. I mean, you you don't, you know, an injury isn't going to take away his intelligence and his anticipation and his hands and just his strength in some ways. Like all that stuff is going to be there. But he looked like a guy who was not really ready to have an impact on this game per se. Well, and I think I think we noticed that more clearly offensively because like he he wasn't able to get some of those drives, but he could make passes and he generally conceded more of the passes than I thought they should. 
Yeah, but if you find ways to get that guy in movement in tough situations where he's having to guard and defend and move and be dynamic, I wonder if there was something to attack there. But just by the virtue of this being the defensive player of the year and not a guy like Peyton Pritchard, who you can back down and easily shoot over the top of, he didn't. they didn't seem comfortable at any point, especially in the second half, as far as what they were generating in the half court. And you really saw it with Butler in terms of him trying to get P.J. Tucker to shoot corner threes so desperately and in him forcing handoffs to Gabe Vincent and in the heat running I think three or four consecutive actions just to get Max Struess the ball in the hope of getting him some kind of open shot he didn't make a shot in this game that's a that's a tough place to be but that's the position that the Celtics even when they're not fully healthy put you in because these defenders are either stout enough by play or stout enough by reputation or both that they really don't give you any easy outs And so whatever is going on with their own offense and however much they're turning over the ball, they're always going to have that to fall back on and to lean on in addition to the versatility that we've been talking about and the ability to play so many different ways, really, as the situation uh, demands. Right. And the Celtics have become a good example of something that I've talked about over the years is like a championship threshold for me is being elite on one end and very good on the other. Good to very good, depending on the circumstance. And Boston has an elite defense and they've been good enough offensively. It hasn't been perfect. And the way that they lost the possession game at the first half of game five was just ridiculous. Like they're turning the ball over a lot of those live ball and they're giving up all these offensive rebounds but even then you know like and and then the second half they got you know much better offense from Jalen Brown and from Jason Tatum and you against the heat you only need so much of that and if you but the bigger part of that and this kind of goes back to the idea of the weaknesses is that you can only survive being intensely flawed on one end even if it's for like an eight to nine minute segment of a game you can only survive that so often and only so often against very good teams and The playoffs invariably are going to present challenges to your comfort zones, to your rotations, to everything else. And we've seen that for even the teams that make the finals, whichever two teams that ends up being. And I I think that it is a reminder of how this can be a crucible because you're going to have to counterpunch. You're going to have to shift things because everyone you face or at least some of the teams you face, are so good that you're going to have to go away from that. Has has this run of these last couple of seasons changed the way at all that you think about that balance between, as you're saying, being elite on one side of the ball and at least pretty good on the other? I think we, we saw basically a, a decade plus of modern basketball in which the formula was not just that you had to be elite on one side and pretty good on the other. You had to be elite on offense in order to win an NBA title from, I would say, post-Celtics in 2008 until, I guess, maybe it depends on how you want to include the Raptors in this conversation in 2019, but certainly through the Warriors and the Cavs and the Spurs and the Heat. like those, These teams all had really good defenses. The Mavericks, they all had good defenses, but they were elite offensive teams. And over the last couple of seasons, you know, if the Celtics go on to win it all this season, they would be a case in point in this. I think the bubble Lakers are another elite defensive team with an okay offense. And certainly last year's Bucks. I mean, they were a really good transition offense, but not necessarily the cleanest in the half court. Are we starting to see a sea change in what is viable in terms of winning a championship in the modern NBA? I think so. And the what defense, if you, you know, health, well, I want to talk about health in a minute, but like what defense gives you is it gives you a life raft when your offense isn't going well. And there are games where, and, and this ties in, Seth Partnow had a really good piece at The Athletic today talking about, he. so he was kind of working through why have there been so many blowouts and as a proportion, and a, a part of it is we're playing more possessions and more possessions give you a chance. But another part of it, he said roughly about half of the blowouts so far that we've seen, you can attribute to shooting variants and the idea that these extremely good or extremely bad shooting nights, as we saw with Miami 7 of 45 against the Boston Celtics, that especially on the volume and the proportion of shots that teams are taking from long distance, I believe it's like 37, yeah, he has it, 37% per cleaning the glass of shots in the postseason have been threes. And, and so I think the idea, and you know, you and I have covered a few games of Mav, Mavs Warriors, and also, you know, we're watching everything. There have been some plenty of good examples there. 
is that even good offenses have that ebb and flow. But if you can defend, then you can have a shaky offensive game. Like I would say the Celtics have had a number of those in this Eastern Conference Finals, and you can still survive. For sure. And I think what's interesting about that offensive conversation is if this is just kind of the fate of all teams who are going to take a certain number of three-pointers, what does that mean in terms of what you are empowered to do with your roster? What kind of limitations can you accept or not accept? As a result of the fact that this is going to be every this is like a, a standard of, of modern NBA basketball is there are going to be nights where people aren't hitting their threes. And if you're committed to taking 40, no matter what, does that mean if you're Dallas, for example, you don't need to invest as much in a second star, a, a hypothetical second star? Or does it mean you need to invest more in a second star because of the possibility that on those nights you want to have something going other than Luka Doncic? That's kind of w- something I could find myself coming back to in the context of these teams. It's like, what do, what do the more resilient teams have offensively that is letting them get through these like how do you avoid a game like the heat in game four where there's the bottom completely fell out like how do we avoid that kind of outcome while still having a high level defense and an offense that can produce a ton of threes i've been thinking about that too and one element that i think both to their credit both the celtics and the heat have done at times in the eastern conference finals is trying to break the feedback loop and so feedback loop i've written about it i've talked about it it kind of sort of directly and indirectly inspired a piece by seth backwit nylon calculus about this so if the concept of a feedback loop is that scoring and this is why people say basketball is a game of runs is that scoring a basket makes it more likely that you're going to be in your half court defense and your half court defense is more likely to get a stop and if you get a stop, then you're more likely to get in transition, and transition offense is better than is more efficient than half court offense. So the idea basically being that it's there's a, a positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop that the more things are going well, the more likely it is for them to continue to go well and when things are going poorly. And so I think the one of the lessons to me of this is have some things, whether it's personnel or schemes, to try to break those if they're going poorly. And what I mean by that is I've harped for years on running after makes because you can't do it all the time. That's too tiring for players, especially with high leverage playoff minutes and with players playing a lot of playoff minutes. But picking those spots, and the Warriors are probably the best team in the league at doing this, where the other team made a big shot and they're just going to push it down your throat anyway because it can take away the momentum. They do that a lot on the road in particular. And because sometimes you can get a really good look if the other team's not really prepared, they're happy with what just happened and everything else. So that's one way you can you can break it is basically through sheer force of will. And then another one, and I think this ties in with your star question, and I'm having trouble fully processing this, is getting to the free throw line. Because sometimes you can get to the line, like if you're if you're really, really good at that. Me, there, there are teams that you can then fall back on that and, you know, can kind of get you back into a rhythm. If you draw, if you draw free throws, you're almost definitely going to be in a half court defense the next time you go down the floor, whether the free throws go in or not. The challenge there, though, is that when we're talking about the playoffs and we're talking about the best of the best, A, fewer fouls are typically called, but B, I would say in general, like fewer flyers are committed. You're not going to have as many of those players and you're going to have the seven game adjustments. So a lot of the tricks aren't as effective. Not all of them. If you act like you got hit in the face, you're probably still going to get calls. We've seen that throughout the playoffs. (laughs) Sure. But that is a, it is a very real, like, so if you can, and I think of Kawhi for this, LeBron, of course, prime LeBron is a great example. Like if you can have those times that through a version of force of will, you can kind of bend bend those feedback loops back, you know, kind of boomerang them, not necessarily into your advantage, but just not have them kill you the way that they did Miami, for example, in game five. That can help. But what I'm struggling with is, is that more perception than reality? Is that is that something that you can that is provable? Is that something that you can actually wield? Or is that more just a philosophy that will sometimes help? Yeah, I mean, the foul stuff is always tricky just because it's so game dependent at this point. Especially, it's been really stark in these playoffs, just the way some of these games are officiated versus others. Or, or even sections of games. I mean, you had, yeah. the, you had the, the old hallmark of like a low foul first half is often followed by a high foul third quarter, which we saw in game five where both teams got in the bonus super early. The refs talk and they're like, we didn't call many fouls. Let's call a bunch of fouls. And <laughs> I also think teams can use that to their advantage. Um, of uh, If I were in the locker room, after a low foul first half, 
I mean, you don't need to tell Chris Paul this or a few other guys, but like try to get some stuff early because they're going to call everything. Um, Like it's a good point. Like banking on the rubber band from either direction is probably smart coaching and and smart kind of foresight in terms of game management. But I'd say like one thing that came to mind when you when you were talking about having guys on your team who can break that feedback loop, my brain immediately connected like what you're talking about to me is basketball special teams almost. It's Mm -hmm. like, how do you running after made baskets? As you said, whether it's guys who can create free throws out of thin air, like you need almost these kinds of I associate with almost being role players who are specialists in these ways um, or maybe like quasi stars who are specialists in these ways because, you know, Steph is going to create so much for you. You know, Jason Tatum is going to create so much to you. But it's, you know, is is Draymond jump starting your fast break in situations where there is no fast break or is Al Horford doing that or is Kyle Lowry when he's healthy doing that um, or, or is there a guy like Jordan Poole who's just going to take it off the dribble in those situations and create out of thin air and maybe that's what a team like like Miami is missing in some ways at least in its current kind of injured form or what a team like Dallas is missing in some ways are these kinds of special teams players who are not just system fitting you are going to structure around Luka and hit threes and you know rebound and defend but how are you creating these plus opportunities for us out of nothing how are how are you taking a punt return 40 yards further than you should and therefore we score like what are you doing for us in that kind of uh in that kind of equivalent. I like that you brought up Dallas and it's been one element that I wish their front office could kind of explore is now we've gotten a much larger sample size because we had Luca with Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle teams generally don't run very much. And so I wondered how much of what Dallas's, you know, Dallas's no reputation and and it's and it's earned for not running a ton was due to Carlisle and and his preferences, or was it due to Luka Doncic and his? And what we have seen over the course of, what we've seen over the course of the year is that Luka just doesn't, he doesn't want to do that that often. And they're a massively successful, you know, so if you want, when Luka was on the floor, the Mavs had one of the best half-court offenses in the league. They were 94th percentile, 102.3. They also were the second percentile in terms of frequency in transition, if you want to put it that way, or frequency in the half court, you know, whichever way you want to put. It. So that's on the bottom end. And so one of the ways you brought up special teams that you could do that as Dallas, were Luca amenable to, and I think he would be, is, and again, you have to figure out a lot with this player, somebody who's basically, a, somebody other than Luca, whose job it is to push the ball. And I've had this idea, I've never had the right term for it, where the philosophy though is, you push hard in transition as often as is like physically possible for the players on your team, but you do so with a higher threshold for giving up on it. And what I mean by that is you push hard, but if you don't get anything good, then don't force up a bad shot. Just just pull it out. And a Luka Doncic team is actually perfect for that theory. If you get somebody else to do it, because if then if you like, so whether that's a water bug point guard, which you might not want defensively or a grab and go big, like you could do it a lot of different ways, but basically the idea, or you could even do it with through like three different guys, but you have to, you get somebody who has the right skill set. And so that's typically having enough dribbling having enough passing acumen. They don't necessarily have to be a great shooter themselves. I mean, Draymond Green is a fantastic example of that. But the concept of somebody who can who can do that, and so then and then if you don't get anything, it's the Luca show. And I think that there is value that is kind of like untapped potential for some teams there. And 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 also like you can think about their other teams that really tap that potential, but by virtue of that and their half court like their half court defense or the things like the this year's Toronto Raptors, especially when Van Vliet was unavailable or a great example of that, that you don't have the second half of that. But I think it's actually, as in a weird way, it's more important to cultivate those transition opportunities if you're a good half-court offense because then you become even harder to handle. I love that idea for the Mavs. And I think especially because Luka is such a great defensive rebounder. You know, you could see him being the outlet guy to a teammate running the break in that way who then is going to like really get you into that kind of pace. The issue is, you know, I think Jalen Brunson in particular, you know, he's not blinding quick he's not a pace player per se um he you know he's more about slowing you down and, and working you with footwork and things like that and so it's like it's kind of a tough fit in terms of what they have yeah, and, and and bullock and dfs don't have the no. the handling capacity to to really be that and maybe it could be as simple as 
you know, thinking back to Kevin Love and Corey Brewer back in the Wolves days of somebody who's aggressively leaking out and you're just, you're looking for that pass. I don't think that's quite enough, but it would be better than what they're doing now. And the optionality of that sort of an approach could be really interesting. And we've seen some teams do it. And then the other, like, kind of wrinkle with that going in some ways on the other end of the floor is the teams, Miami's done this reasonably well at times, though not in the second half of game five. The teams that can credibly be a pest on the offensive glass, but not sacrifice transition defense. And so like that's another way you can break the feedback loop is, oh crap, we gave up an offensive rebound and so we can't push, we can't do all this other stuff. And like that was part of what short-circuited Boston's offense in the first half of Game 5. Yeah, I mean, that kind of floor balance is a superpower. You know, it's a very delicate dance to do. You have to have a really, a really cerebral collection of players in terms of understanding this is when I need to get back and this is when I need to offensive rebound. And there are some teams who are kind of on the precipice of getting there, I think, in interesting ways. Like the Grizzlies are one of these teams teams for me because they're obviously really aggressive on the offensive glass but by virtue of the way they space the floor and specifically the fact that jaron jackson jr is so often on the perimeter they get back in transition defense really well despite that and you know jaron jackson was blocking i think he blocked more shots in transition this season than anybody uh, as a result of that kind of approach so you see some teams kind of flirting with the edges of that and you i think you know I, i'm trying to think of you know with luca and the mavs who this transition player could be whether it is like a cory brewer type is you mentioned whether it is another guard maybe this is spencer dinwiddie's ultimate fate with the team is he could become that kind of specialist for them or something like that but i'm thinking about how how could they get their hands on a tyrese maxi like player you know someone who's just that blindingly quick and maybe that's the ultimate fate of the sixers is getting into a place where james harden is not the guy who brings the ball up the court tyrese maxi is sprinting up the court and then you're rerouting when there's nothing there back to james harden I think it would be a really good way to make it work. And I've thought about the Sixers a lot since, especially since they were eliminated in some weird ways, because of this idea that I talked about before of how teams succeed. And you brought up elite defensively versus elite offensively. And especially if it's the Harden maxi combo, it's hard for me to imagine Philly ever becoming either elite or very good. As as much as I respect and think Joel Embiid's defense has been underappreciated over the last couple of years because of his amazing offense, they're not going to be versatile. Like that's not that's not what their personnel dictates. No. And they also don't even have that many good defenders. You know, that's it's so sort of the reverse of what we talked about with the Celtics. Like, well, cra- like we saw that in the in the series against Mavis. Like, well, well, crap, they don't have anybody to guard anybody. And other than Thibel in certain circumstances. And that is a and Embiid can do can do his things. But so with Philly, I understand and I was sympathetic to the idea that, you know, James Harden was the best available individual player at the deadline. And he also might make some sense with Embiid's timeline if you're worried like I am that Embiid is just not going to have the long-term durability to, to make it work. You know, he's a big guy. Big guys generally age a little bit differently. And he has all these pre you know, pre-existing injuries. And so if one of those goes in, so the idea being that's there. But then you have this idea that's like, yeah, but how are how are they going to beat good teams in let's say you face a good team in three series? How are they going to do how are they going to face three different flavors of good team and beat all of them? And the answer might be just they're probably not. And that's okay. And not every team can be a championship front runner or anything else. And that gets into the idea you brought this up with Dallas, but with Philly, it's like Okay, let's say let's say I'm right. Let's say Daryl Morey agrees with me and thinks, okay, then what do you do about that? And I I don't know. Do you fill it around with role players and give it your best shot and do what you're going to do? You can't really trade James Harden. You just traded for him. You can't really trade Tyrese Maxey because he's the guy who's improved the most on your team. And he might be the pathway if Harden fades off. It might be Maxey becoming a star that is that shifts your timeline sort of in a way like the most optimistic view of Jordan Poole with the Warriors. And so I that's part of why being a general manager is so hard is that I don't know that there is a good answer here. Yeah, if you want to look at the last five champions, so the Bucks, the Lakers, the Raptors, and two Warriors teams, when I look at those rosters and specifically their best lineups, I think one thing that jumps out is if you're going to win a championship, you might not be able to have a single player on the floor who isn't at least as good defensively as Steph Curry is. And I think Steph Curry is a, a pretty solid defender. He's a guy who gets picked on by Luka Doncic and by LeBron James because who the hell can guard those guys, especially if you're a guard. But otherwise, does really well showing and recovering, does really 
fairly well in his role, like manages and maintains pretty well. And so if you're below the Steph Curry level defensively, maybe you just can't be on the floor for a critical number of minutes on a championship run. It just might not be feasible with the way that guys can be hunted out now, which changes the models for a Joel Embiid team and the models for a Rudy Gobert team. Any of these teams that are kind of premised on the idea that we're going to have this one, usually center, who's going to prop up lesser defenders on our roster, it might just not be feasible anymore. I mean, you really have to go back. I would I would guess maybe the 2016 Cavs has some examples of these players, whether it's you know J.R. Smith or Kyrie, but even those guys were competitive defenders defensively within that playoff run they just didn't have the best defensive reputations yeah and Ke- kevin love also yes. has has some severe limitations there and and cleveland they could also be an exception that proves the rule because of the brilliance of lebron james and because the Cavs, that Cavs team they had some they definitely had some moments defensively i thought they had this but that like they could put it together for a stretch that was long enough and they and also they had they had an unbelievable offense so you, you could kind of put it put it together and yeah i think that's it's a really interesting point about where can those players go and plenty more with rob mahoney but first the message from betonline.ag our partners at betonline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information follow the latest odds news and sports developments including this year's basketball playoffs major league baseball scores fights and even next season's nfl futures betonline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering needs including live betting and of course your favorite vegas casino and poker games it is really easy to get started so head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up today and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that is CLNS50, and you can remember that 50 because it's a 50% welcome bonus. So check it out at BetOnline, where the game starts. That, you know, the, there are going to be all these questions about, like, the Phoenix Suns and how do they fit in and, you know, like Dallas going from... And remember, like, Dallas got their butts kicked in three of the seven games in that series. Yeah. And then, but they won it winning three out of four and so definitively in that game seven that inevitably that will shift perception of of how things went and how the Suns, you know, how... because And also because the Suns f- failed so dramatically physically and mentally at home in a game seven is is going to be a lingering thing for not only us as analysts but for fans and for the people involved in the organization i mean that like the ripples of like i long thought that the sun's offseason wasn't particularly interesting but i didn't think of this as a way that it could be is like <laughs> yeah. not only not only because you lose in that way that kind of forces you to reevaluate but also because I'm assuming we would not have heard much about the Monty Williams, DeAndre Eaton rift if it hadn't ended as poorly as it did so that like a little bit of that kind of came off publicly and then people started digging and everything else like that might have happened after whatever re- resolves this summer or maybe Aiton is retained and then traded at some point and they're like oh he and Monty Williams never liked each other or something else like that instead we got some of that and so great reporters like Jake Fisher have done more digging I don't I don't know if they would have had the opportunity to do that before so I, I think that that's another element of this is kind of like how that all goes but I wanted to, I wanted to follow up on something you brought up and so we talked about the idea of can teams you know know, kind of burn the midnight oil and play, be aggressive offensive rebounding and get back. And I was actually very surprised by this. So I pulled up cleaning the glass. One way that I like to look at this is offensive rebound percentage. Like that's about the best we can do. You could theoretically maybe do something in terms of contested or anything else, but like in available stuff, cleaning the glass has that. And then for opponent ha- opponents like transition, what I actually like to use there, because I think it's a good calibrator, is the proportion of possessions that the opponents play in the half court. And so the idea basically being, did you get back enough that they didn't take a shot? As opposed to whether those shots go in or not, because can that can be more variable and everything else. But whether they choose to take one, just sort of like the three-point idea that it, you can control how many, you control volume more than success. And what surprised me is, if you look at the top 10 teams, and I think I would have to go back to look if this is true historically. If you look at the top 10 teams in terms of offensive rebound percentage this year, astonishingly, six of them are in the top 10 of opponent half-court percentage. Wow. And I'll go through the list because what part of what makes this fascinating is that some of these teams are massively successful and some of them are not. And <laughs> I don't know... Like it, Some of that might be... There might be some sleeping giants here. Some of that might be... Some good fortune we've given the year. Okay, but I'll go through it. Number one offensive rebounding team this year is Memphis. Fifth lowest 
transition frequency, opponent transition frequency for Memphis. So one in five, and one in five is the best combined score. Like no team, no team does that. Number two, uh, offensive rebounding team and the inspiration behind this riff, riff originally in the first place. Or actually, it was Memphis and Toronto. Toronto, unsurprisingly, does both. They're number two offensive rebound, number nine opponent half court frequency. Then number three is Indiana. Indiana's three and eight in those. And then number four, New Orleans, also here. New Orleans, fourth in offensive rebound, sixth in opponent half court frequency. And then the Jazz. Thank you, Rudy Gobert, and all the rest of their guys for getting back. They're fifth and seventh. Then New York is sixth and third. And then you get into the teams that aren't on both. Minnesota, Brooklyn, San Antonio, and Cleveland. But that is, I, I was stunned that the top six teams in offensive rebound are all top 10 in opponent half-court frequency. Yeah, it's not It's not even like it's checkered around the top 10. It's definitive no. one through six. Yeah, and then, and then number eight is Brooklyn, and Brooklyn gave up the most in transition. Not a surprise. <laughs> I think the the outlier there, the team that jumps out to me is Indiana, and it that's the team where I'm trying to figure out the math there on how they were able to balance that, given all of their roster shakeups this season, given how small they had to play at various stages, and maybe that's the answer, because that's what clearly works for teams like Toronto is small, flexible players, bigs who you know are are quasi bigs who are are you know, crashing the glass, being very aggressive but are very athletic uh, and quick on their feet, and maybe Indiana has something going like that too at least post post Sabonis trade um because a lot of these other teams they have you know the bigs and the athleticism to manage that balance you know you think about Memphis you think about New Orleans you think about Utah that's the basic formula how is Indiana getting into this mix I don't know but now I want to do a podcast with Caitlin Cooper talking about it because I had no idea that that double was there for them and like I used to be obsessed with this with Oklahoma City back when they had Steven Adams and that they were able to get back and and like Dallas to their credit I think one of the things they're not one of the top offensive rebounding teams and I would be interested in what they... I, I haven't done the splits post-trade deadline and everything else, um, though they haven't been particularly great as I've thought about it, is you... A lot of times, like, the, the most important thing for transition defensive success is your big getting back. But if the other four do a pretty good job, odds are you're not going to concede anything amazing unless the other team has, like, a LeBron or Giannis or something else. And so maybe there is something to it. And with Indiana, another component of it might be, as I'm recalling it, historically, Rick Carlisle teams have done a nice job getting back on defense. It's just that they didn't usually always, they didn't always get the offensive rebounds. And so, yeah, so like Dallas... Dallas is they were generally pretty good at that. There were a couple of years that they were shakier, but they were they were they were top half of the league three of Carlisle's last five years. So that that's pretty good. And they were well below that for a few, and then they were in their best years in the title years, they were pretty solid in that as well. Hmm. So I think it, it could be something where it's they, they like it, they they like it and they prefer to have it happen, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. I would love to dig into that more more fully with the Indiana Pacers and I don't think that we well. So uh, I don't want to dwell too much on other series. We've actually hit on Miami, Boston a lot during this. What I'll say, kind of as uh, for the Western Conference Finals, is not only because I'm somebody who picked Dallas to win the series, and getting them to win a game makes it less embarrassing whether they win more games or not. I I liked for for my own like analytical purposes. I liked that we got a game that was more like, oh, this is what I thought the whole series was going to be like. Not that the Mavs were up by 29 at the end of the third quarter, but their defensive philosophy and their guys actually hitting the open shots that the Warriors were conceding. It's like, yeah, those were things that I thought could happen at least a few times in the series. And that's why we're having a game five. I think we've seen it in stages in other games, too. I mean, in game two, it was there. Like the the formula for Dallas to win was there. They just got like their their water shut off completely in the third quarter. Like To go in, in game two, 32 points in the first quarter, 40 points in the second, 13 in the third quarter, and then back to 32 in the fourth, which is like such a wild swing and aberration in that game that facilitated them blowing a 19 point lead. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that that ruins your series, that ends your season season effectively like that that quarter and that game was the one the Mavericks had to have and they did not and so maybe this maybe this kind of ties back into our special teams conversation or you know secondary playmaking or what it is that can make their offense a little bit more stable than it is just a little bit because Luka is going to get you a lot of the way I think their shooters are generally pretty good and are able to space the floor and give the Mavs kind of the structure and the space that they need but there was something they were missing there that they really needed um, in a way that I think could have leveled out the dynamic in this series because 
Dallas's highs are definitely high enough to not just hang with the Warriors, but beat them pretty consistently. They just can't quite get into, you know, not maxing out at this is our absolute peak 100 percentile performance. But like, how can we get to 75, 80 percentile of what we can be more consistently and stay there against an opponent opponent that's this good? And also an opponent that challenges you defensively in a very different way than the Phoenix Suns did. The Suns are... Mike Prada, I think, did a really good job articulating this concept, but it was basically the Warriors... The Warriors press you before they create an advantage and the Suns do it after. I believe that's right. I will apologize to Mike if I got it wrong. And... So you could think about that from Dallas's perspective of like they kind of knew where to be and they knew how to mitigate some of the the most damaging things that the Suns wanted to do. But the Warriors, and there was a learning curve with this, but also, I mean, there's just, it's just hard to defend them well. And so for Dallas, and why I thought Dallas was going to be better in this series is that Dallas did a nice job defending the Warriors overall in the regular season. And they had also done a pretty good job containing dribble penetration against Phoenix. And then you know part of what really swung games two and three was Steph Curry getting loose, getting into the lane which hadn't really happened for him in their series against the Memphis Grizzlies. It did against the the Nuggets, but the Nuggets defense is bad. And so, especially in their current iteration. And and so I'm interested in how that goes. You know, we're recording this a few hours ahead of game ahead of game five, and we'll see what which of these stories, if either of them, gets to be the case. And obviously, we don't know who is going to be in the NBA Finals yet. Both series have one team with three wins. Let's say, and I know we're not picking a series. We don't even know that they're the two teams in. What do you think are the definitive elements of a theoretical Celtics-Warriors Finals? Well, I think we're kind of zeroing in on one of them with the Mavs matchup, too, as you mentioned. like How different that matchup is or was for the Mavs from Phoenix. And you you flip that to Boston and say, okay, is Boston better equipped to transition from one style of play to the next, from one matchup to the next, to get to an offense like the Warriors in a way that the Mavs have not been able to consistently? I think they do have the personnel to do it. And maybe in some ways playing against Miami, just with the way that their guys move off ball, might condition you to kind of get in that mindset a little earlier than someone like Phoenix would, who, you know, their guys move off ball too, but it's a little more like pinned down into the handoff in a way you can scout out and you can prevent and you can kind of blow up Devin Booker's spot, for example, in those kinds of situations. Golden State is just so reactive. Like they're they're so improvisational in a way that requires you to have the scheme versatility, have the the guys on the floor who can make those split-second decisions, and have a lot of switchable defenders who can hang in a variety of matchups. And that's where Boston just seems a little bit better suited to guarding the Warriors than the Mavs do. That said, you, you watch some of these possessions that the Warriors have been able to work over on the Mavs. And th- there's not a lot, like, sometimes the Mavs aren't even doing anything wrong, per se. Or, or they're doing a making a play that by the numbers you can totally understand why they would do or why players would make certain rotations under certain circumstances. The Warriors just make you do things where you're chasing the ball or you're chasing Steph in ways that they can really easily exploit because they've been doing it at this point for basically a decade. Uh, And so how Boston keeps up with that stuff is that's the battleground for the series to me. Not exactly rocket science to say, oh, this is a great defense. This is, you know, one of the more fascinating and unique offenses. Let's see how they butt heads. Um, But I think the the nature in which Boston defends does it should line up with the Warriors. I'm just not 100 percent sure that it will. That's a very good point, and I I will phrase it differently, but I'm actually more interested in the other end of the floor, but I'll explain mm. it on both ends. And so part of why Dallas has had so much trouble, especially in the early games against the Warriors, is there were certain matchups and certain things that they didn't want to concede. And there was a lot, they were putting a lot of a lot of their eggs in the don't let Steph and don't let Clay go off from three baskets. Yeah. And that's part of how the Warriors were 81% from two. I believe that was in game two. And they were getting all these shots around the basket. They also did did some real damage in game three. And they part of, that was also partially how they were able to get on the offensive glass better in those games. And also Dallas just was better on defensive rebounding in game four. But Boston, by virtue of the talent, as we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, there are far fewer matchups that that are going to concern them where they're like, where, oh, we can't put player X on Stephen Curry. We can't put player Y on Klay Thompson. No, I think they're pretty much cool. And and what I think Ime Udoka might get to eventually 
is what I've encouraged Dallas to do, and I thought they were better at this in Game 4, is don't be as afraid of the less advantageous matchups because what you were conceding is worse than what you're giving up by like letting Steph Curry get a couple of one-on-ones on Luka. And I thought Luka did a pretty right. good job in those. And first of all, Boston has fewer that they are worried about conceding. And secondly, I think they're more willing to shift the strategy than Jason Kidd was. But where I'm more interested in that is, is the other end. And I think that Miami deserves an immense amount of credit for how hard they played defensively and also like how they've nearly weathered some offensive, not even storms, just like catastrophes by virtue of being really good defensively. But we brought, I brought up before this concept of it's, you know, the title teams are great on one end and good to very good, ideally very good on the other end. And I'm not the most comfortable person in the world that this Boston offense is going to have it all the time against the Warriors. And again, but it's the same question of what are you willing to concede? What are you not? Because is Steve Kerr going to see every time Stephen Curry or Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole's the bigger problem, gets on Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown as a panic situation, you need to send somebody else or you need to scheme around that. Maybe you do more zone. Because if that's it, I think the Warriors are going to have more matchups that worry them than the Celtics are. And even though Steph Curry is a better offensive player than anybody on the Celtics, they just the Warriors just have more limited defenders, and Poole will be a one-man battleground during that series should it come to pass. And I'm very interested in how both coaches handle that and whether they will be as aggressive kind of in it as, as I think they will be. And then the other big question on that, and, and I mean, one of the revelations for me of this Western Conference Finals has been my skepticism, and it's, it's one of the important reasons why I picked the Mavericks in the series, I was very skeptical that Kevon Looney was going to be able to hold his own in this series. And I think part of it was a misread on how well he could defend Luka and that he could kind of hold his own on a switch and do well enough. And partially because it was like, well, if it, if it's not Looney, then it's going to have to be someone else. And with all of these other injuries, including Andre Guadala, who we still have no word on him, and Gary Payton and Otto Porter, we'll see what his availability is for the final should the Warriors make it. And so it's like, well, if it's not him, then they're kind of screwed. And it's sort of the same story for the Warriors, but not for the Celtics with their center, because the Celtics already have an established five-man viable lineup that does not involve Robert Williams, assuming Marcus Smart is healthy enough and everybody else, and Jason Tatum's shoulder isn't screwed or anything else. The Warriors, if Kevon Looney, and I think he'll be okay in that series, but if Kevon Looney is less viable against the Celtics than he has been against the Mavericks, do the Warriors have the wings to play Draymond at center? Yeah, you're asking a lot of like Moses Moody all of a sudden, you or, know, or, if, Kaminga, if, or Kaminga, or yeah, or like I mean maybe maybe Porter comes back enough, or you try Bielitsa. Like none of these none of these are options that give you a ton of confidence. No, but but there are interesting dynamics on both sides of that in terms of the feedback loops we've been talking about and how you avoid them. And I think that's where you know Dallas. I think Jason Kidd understandably has taken a little bit of heat for the the defensive dynamic you mentioned where the Mavs have been resolute about guarding Steph Curry and not letting him be the one to beat them and as a result you get Kevon Looney career highs you know that's that's kind of the trade-off of that what I think the Mavs are doing in putting so much pressure on Steph and and doubling and showing and and kind of you know putting multiple bodies on him in so many different situations is they're kind of trying to put the Warriors on tilt in a way that the Grizzlies did for example where you're daring them to make those passes in the hope that they get a little fast and loose and turn the ball over a bunch and then you're hoping that feeds into whether it's picking off for live ball turnovers whether they're throwing those balls out of bounds and you're you're taking it out but they're they're deflated as a result of that I think that's kind of the gambit that Dallas ran and it's a gambit that ultimately has not borne fruit to this point but I can understand how you get there and you can see that kind of dynamic in the inverse should Boston and Golden State meet in the finals where Miami has been able to force Boston into turnovers like I've heard the conversation around Boston and its turnover troubles as oh you know, Boston is giving up these possessions. They're they're being sloppy with the ball. All of that is true, but Miami is up in your jersey. Like these yes. are guys who are all over. Miami, you. one of the best turnover forcing teams in the league. 
period. Absolutely. And Golden State is not. Like, they are not a, a turnover-forcing defense. They're a switch-and-hold-you-down or a contain-you or, in these playoffs, a zone defense in, in a lot of different situations. And some of their turnover-forcing numbers are a product of playing a team like Dallas, who does not turn the ball over. That's just not what the Mavericks do. Like, Luka, the trade-off for not running the ball and not getting some of the transition stuff we talked about wanting them to do earlier is Luka is micromanaging a lot, and that is not a guy who is just slinging the ball around you know like he is very intentional about where the ball is going to a point that preserves a lot of possessions and so you know flash forward to a potential Warriors Celtics matchup are the Warriors going to be able to put the kind of ball pressure on a team like the Celtics that the Heat have that has really stalled them out and slowed them down because it's one thing to be able to hang in the matchups and as you said even just to survive in some of these mismatches but if you're letting the Celtics get into their stuff more freely in a way that the Heat haven't been able to maybe that Boston offense seems a little more stable maybe it seems like it can it can be a little bit more um, a little bit more productive on a more consistent basis if they aren't being challenged in that particular way yeah that's that's really interesting. And one other front that I'll mention briefly, and this will inevitably come up when I do finals previews and probably two different podcasts and maybe written form as well, is paralleling the Memphis series. Dylan Brooks in particular, but the Grizz had a bunch of guys who could do this. They have they had a lot of personnel that were really good at navigating screens and taking away to the extent that you can a lot of what of Steph Curry's off ball game that is so dangerous. And I think that Marcus Smart and Derek White, we've seen some really good off ball work from Derek White in this series. That is going to make Steph Curry is going to like the off ball stuff is going to be significantly less viable to me against Boston. And that is really honestly, whatever scheme Boston wants to run, I think that's going to be a real challenge for the Warriors. And how do you counter that? Do you counter that? What I would do is put Steph Curry on the ball more. He's very good at it. Just do it more often. But okay, that, that old chestnut. But the challenge there is something that I think has come to pass a couple of times in this series. And you could argue in the Memphis series is that Steph Curry with the ball in his hands works a lot, but it fundamentally changes the players they need around him. And if you're running things through Steph in more of a conventional way, the combination of Draymond Green and Kevon Looney becomes a lot less tenable because teams can kind of help off of one or both of them. And if Draymond doesn't, you know, he, he's still an adept screen setter and everything else, but it gets a lot harder. And so how, if, if my theory of that is correct, how does Steve Kerr handle that? Does he shift it with personnel? Does he shift it with scheme? And how long does it take to come to that revelation? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about who who can guard off-ball action, I'm not sure there's a team in the league that's better prepared for that than the Celtics with Derek White and Marcus Smart. Like, those are two of the best screen navigators in the league when it comes to staying attached to guys. Uh, that dynamic is really interesting. And I, I, it comes back to something with the Memphis series, which I think is going to be a, a very important reference point for a variety of reasons, as you brought it up. But was that series indicative of a tough matchup for the Warriors or was it indicative of where they were at a point in time and they've evolved sure. beyond it, you know, like maybe that was just kind of getting some of the rust off of their machinery in terms of getting back into a playoff setting and what these matchups look like and what you have to do to shed a Dylan Brooks or shed a hypothetically a Derek White or a Marcus Smart. And maybe maybe they're going to be better suited for that stuff. Uh, but it's it's fascinating. I mean, that, like I'm not. I think that's that's one that, especially if both these series wrap up quickly and we get four or five days in between the conference finals and the finals, I think digging back into that Memphis tape is going to be pretty fruitful in terms of figuring out what this future matchup could potentially look like. And that four to five days potentially reminds me of the last thing I want to discuss, which is a take. It's not firmly a takeaway from these playoffs, but it is these playoffs have been a great reminder of it. Is the importance of health and the importance of functional depth because as I'm trying to remember who I might have been to Caius Duncan brought this up is like almost everyone's playing hurt and they're doing their best out there and you have to a like in a, so like the 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 way that I thought about this after the Suns made the finals last year is the way the the champion and generally the NBA finalists are the healthiest teams that are in the mix and so that's like viable championship level teams that are the healthiest of their brethren and I think should that be what you know should we end up with warrior celtics i think that is a great way of describing those two teams is that they are both viable championship teams that were also healthier but that's not why the suns lost so i'm not sure it totally fits in um and so i i don't know that there's 
you know, like functional depth that's drafting well, that's developing players, that's doing well on your minimum contracts. All of those things, Nate and I did a whole riff on this when the Bucks got knocked out about how they had all these players on their roster that you couldn't really trust in a 16-game, and, and they weren't 16-game players. And a credit to the front offices, honestly, the front offices of, of all four of these teams, but especially the Celtics, the Warriors, and the Heat, to have 9, 10, 11 guys that you can put on the floor, and not necessarily for 30 minutes a game, but for 15 to 20. Well, I want to shout out the Mavs in that regard, too, because they are a team who I think it's very easy to forget at this stage in the season, lost Tim Hardaway Jr. for the season. That's true. So whatever, whatever you think of Tim Hardaway Jr., he was the guy who was giving them 30 minutes a game on the wing, and that you could lose a player like that, plug in other guys, make a make a significant midseason trade that was, I think, had mixed reception at the time. I certainly panned it. I did not think trading Chris Porzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans was going to work. It absolutely did. And so, like, the fact that they are still here with the depth that they have, I think, is impressive just the same. That's a very good point, and thank you, thank you for making it. And them missing, even if even if you think that Tim Hardaway Jr. is miscast on this team, hello, it's, he still does fill fill some roles for them that are important. And how Nico Harrison and Mark Cuban and Jason Kidd resolve that moving forward is one of the more interesting Mavericks questions. Not nearly as interesting as what Jalen Brunson does, but still in that. And, and so I think it is, yeah, that idea of functional depth. And I mean, but functional depth, the funniest part about it is it it only, it matters when it matters. And so like, I mean, go back to Boston, even though Marcus Smart was hurt, they only really played seven guys in the rotation in that game against Miami. And you're, you have functional depth. Honestly, it really is functional depth that can coalesce into that, that you're really looking for. And it's hard. Like, oh, I yeah. Mean, the, the margins on this stuff are so thin. You know, I was thinking back to, you know, when Pat Connaughton hurt, I think it was his hand and it looked like he might not only miss some time in the regular season, but in the playoffs. And this was shortly after the Bucks had traded Dante DiVincenzo, had committed to, you know, playing a certain way and trying Serge Ibaka and this stuff. And it's like, is this going to cost them their season that Pat Connaughton got hurt? And you can see similar situations playing out across the playoffs with not stars but role players like you lose the wrong role player at the wrong time and it could it could be it could tank your entire playoff run and and really that Boston has been able to do what they've done with Al Horford in and out of the lineup Marcus Smart in and out of the lineup Rob Williams in and out of the lineup Derek White missing a game to attend to the birth of his child congratulations Derek White um Tatum's weird shoulder thing Tatum Tatum is very clearly banged up and they just make it work. And that was that was a team that was shallow to begin with, that we were already saying going into the playoffs, they can't afford to lose one guy. And they've lost four or five guys for a game or so at a time or two games at a time and have just made it happen. And incredible credit to to those players and that staff for for duct taping it all together and for building the habits from basically, you know, I would say January or December on defensively, they could just carry them through no matter who's out there. It's a great point. Um, I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer about other things unless you have something that you really want to discuss. I will thank you for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Ringer. You can also listen to him on The Ringer NBA show. And you can follow him if you don't already at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having him on. And I thought this was a really fascinating conversation. Rob and I generally don't have much of a roadmap when we do these. And part of the reason why is because we can go in lots of different directions. And I like the way that he reacted and, and the way that we, we kind of respond to each other, got in some some conversations about like kind of how you build teams and viability and all that that were particularly compelling for me and helped me kind of hone the way that I'm thinking about some of these key concepts and really did enjoy that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways that you can do so. You can subscribe, download every episode that is valuable, whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple, whatever, because Real GM Radio will never come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability, guest availability, all that fun stuff. You can also leave a rating and review in that same podcast player, or you can spread the word by word of mouth for a single episode or the show in general. Help other people find the show. Really do appreciate that. And the single most important thing you can do for this show or any other that has them, is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code to get your 50% welcome bonus and tell them that you came from us, which helps us out. 
You can also check out my other work. Nate and I are still doing a lot of Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, not only breaking down every game, but also really starting work on our off-season previews, and we'll start draft work soon. I've actually started mine, um, but I think Nate's in the process on his, so we'll be getting into that over the next few weeks, of course, as well. So this is as good a time, if not better time than any, to subscribe to that. We are also doing Spotify Live. Typically, that is on Tuesdays at 3 Pacific, 6 Eastern. This This week, it's a little different um, because Nate had some travel. We're doing Friday, so you still have one to listen to this week at 3.30 Pacific, 6.30 Eastern. And those are typically released about a day later as a podcast, if you prefer that through Spotify. They have all the rights to it, so you can check that out there. And then we are doing calls of live games on Playback, which is this really cool platform where you log in with your streaming or cable provider and you can watch single screen experience. You see the game and our commentary all synced up at the same time. No need to do all the things we used to have to work on, and we really love that. And we'll be doing that for, broadly speaking, every remaining game that we do not attend in person. There will be a slight gap. Um, I have a wedding to attend um, during the finals, but other than that, I think that should be one game. We should be good to go. And you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I had a piece that came out earlier this week on the extend or trade concept, which is basically, I, I go through it a lot in the piece. You can read it at The Athletic. Um, but it, it was fun to do and um, ended up becoming a single massive 3,500 or whatever word piece instead of being in two. And I think that helped it read well. Um, I appreciate editorial making that decision. And I'll have more stuff coming out in the near term, probably on a bunch of different fronts, off seasons that interest me and everything else. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.